Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we do worship you uh, for your grace. We've been studying about this morning. We thank you that we are saved only by your will. You sought us and you chose us and you brought us into your family. Thank you, God, for your grace. We ask, God, this morning that you would add grace on grace, that you would give us the ability this morning to understand your word more clearly, uh, to love you more deeply, and to obey you more faithfully. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the elders have uh, given me three weeks um, to, dis- to talk about systematic theology. Of course, y'all do a series every now and then on systematic theology. So the next doctrine I think that y'all are going to do is the doctrine of man. So we're going to spend these next three weeks talking about the image of God. Um, now, you remember in, in, the, in the Gospels, in the last week of Jesus' life, every day he would go into the temple and he would teach. And the Pharisees and Sadducees or whoever was there would come and they would pester him with questions or try to catch him in his words or they would do something. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was the first or second day of that week, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians get together and they come to Jesus and they say, what do you, well, we know, they start flattering him. Well, we know that you're, you don't respect men and you teach whatever God says and you don't show favorites. So should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Of course, you know that the Herodians, they supported Caesar and they wanted to pay their taxes and the Pharisees didn't. So, of course, it's a loaded question and they were trying to trick him. What was Jesus' response? Bring me a coin, okay? And the funny thing about that is in the temple, of course, whose picture is on the coin? Caesar's, and Caesar thought he was a god, and you would offer, you would, uh, Caesar was an idol, and the funny thing is, these Jews have this coin with an idol on it in the temple, where Jesus is teaching, so the, just the fact that Jesus asked them to bring a coin shows their hypocrisy, but, so they bring a coin, and he's, and what does Jesus say? Whose inscription is this, and whose picture, and it's of course Caesar's, and then what does Jesus say? Give, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and render to God what is God's. And so the implication is, on this coin, there's a picture of that coin on your sheet there, and that's probably the actual coin that he would have, they would have used. And there's a picture of the Caesar there, and so this coin is the image of Caesar. And so if this has the image of Caesar, that means there's some obligation. This coin belongs to Caesar. It's not really your coin. So what's, you know, you pull the dollar bill out of your wallet, it says the U.S. Treasury on there. It's not yours. It really belongs to them. So if they ask for it back, what do you do? You give it back. So what is the, what is the last half of Jesus' statement there? When he says, render unto God what is God's, what is he implying? He doesn't spell it out for us. He just makes an implication. What is that? Okay, that's true. Everything is God's. Right, he's drawing an analogy. Just like this coin has the image of Caesar on it, there's something in creation, although all creation belongs to God, there is something in creation that has God's image on it. And whatever has the image on it belongs to God. So what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, God owns you. And your life is to be devoted to him. So in, the, in those days, it was very clear what the, what the, when Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, everybody knew you're supposed to pay a denarius. That was the tax. When the, when the census was taken, that's what you gave. You gave this coin. Um, but what is, what is it that God wants from us? What are we supposed to render unto God? That's the question. That's the question we're going to answer today and over the next three weeks. This week, we're going to work up, we're going to try and work towards a definition of the image of God. 
what does that phrase actually mean? Because it's kind of vague. It is, it is a nebulous kind of concept. So we're going to work toward, we're going to spend this week working toward a definition of it. Next week, we're going to talk about um, how the image of God can be reflected in marriage and in relationships. And then the third week, we're going to talk about how the image of God can be reflected in the church and in society. So that's, that's the plan. That's where we're going. Uh, so the task today is to work, work up some kind of a definition. Before we get to our sheet, uh, let's, y'all tell me what you have heard. Let's just one at a time raise your hands. What have you heard, because obviously we've all been in church for a long time, what have you heard people say the image of God is? Nobody's heard anything. Okay. <laughs> well, this will be a good class. <laughs> okay. Okay. The attributes that we share with God, that he has communicated to us, that we share with him. So I'm not going to spell that because I don't know how. But um, Is that readable? Okay. And what are some of those attributes? Love, creativity, that kind of thing. Also, holiness, um, justice, kindness. All of these things that humans can do, at least have some, some capacity to do, even though we're fallen, um, that God has. Okay, what else? Has anyone heard anything else? That's probably the main one. Okay. Yeah, that would, that would maybe fit under there, but we'll put it separately. We'll put it down here. Okay. Right, because the, the animals don't really do this, do they? I mean, your dog can be trained, but he doesn't reason. You know, you, you beat him when he pees on the carpet. He, he knows not to do that, but he's not choosing. There's not, a, there's not a conscious, logical process going on in the mind. It's just, if I do that, I get beat, so I don't do that anymore. So there's not really a logical will in an animal. So there's something that is distinct from us, and it's something that we share with God. Okay, what else? What have y'all heard about the image of God? Okay, so there's a, let's say a, mo a moral capacity. Okay, that's similar to will, but it's a little bit different too. Um, in a few minutes when we get to the different views, this is all basically one view, which is the most common view. Um, but now let's get into our sheet. Um, so all of us are basically in kind of the same area. These are all, there's, this view is basically saying that there's something in us, something in the human nature, something in the way we're created that is similar to God in his nature. There's some structure inside humanity that makes us similar to God's nature. That's basically what all of these are saying, even though we might pick different ones. 
Um, let's, start, let's start our study on the image of God looking at the, the Genesis and the creation account. And what we're going to do is we're going to read that. And we're going to try and come up with some initial observations. We're not going to try and get a definition just yet. Just kind of set the parameters of what the image of God can be. So open your Bibles to Genesis 1. And this is a familiar passage. Um, we'll start in verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has yielded has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth. So he gives them all that. And the end of the six days that everything was very good. Um, so if you didn't read anything else in the Bible, and you had never heard anyone preach a sermon on this, and you had never studied on your own, if you just read those verses, what could you know about the image of God? Sorry. Okay, that there's some that it's um, humankind is the capstone of creation. This is the sixth day; it's the last day of creation, and it's the last thing God made on that day. So there's there's kind of a pyramid here that's building up to the creation of man. So man being in the image of God means he is somehow better than the other stuff that God made. Okay, that's one. That's a good one. What else? Okay, that's certainly one of the common views that we didn't hit over here is that what the image of God is, is dominion. In other words, the image, some people think the image of God is not something in us, something in our composite nature that makes us who we are, it's something that we do. And that's, that's more and more common these days. And, and all right, that's, that's in the text, isn't it? Right after he says, I'm going to make you in my image, he's going to say, I'm going to put you over all the animals. So there is, there is a definite connection there. Okay, what else? Okay. Yeah, and so we there is a a mission given to us. We could put that we could put that under here of things that we do. That's the image of God. Okay. What do the words image and likeness mean? Let's think about that for a minute. This same word is used throughout the Bible for idols. Now, um, there's also a passage, I think it's in 1 Kings, where the, the king of Israel, I can't remember which one, 
he goes to another city and he sees the, the temple that's there. It's a, a pagan temple. Well, he, go, he really likes that. So he goes back to Jerusalem and he makes a model of it, and it's the word here for likeness. And he shows it to the priest and says, I want you to make me one of these. So he, gets, he makes a, little, a small version of the same thing and shows it to the priest and says, this is what I want. It looks like this. So there's a, the image in likeness, those words mean representation. They mean a similarity. So there, there is something about man that is intended not just to be like God, but to be a representation of God. We're supposed to be a reflection of him somehow. Um, now, if all we were going to do is read Genesis 1, that's probably where we might stop. Let's turn over and make a few more initial observations. Let's look at Genesis chapter 5. We'll read verses uh, 1 and 2 there. I'm sorry, 1, 2, and 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became a father to a son in his own likeness and according to his own image and named him Seth. So in this text, there's a comparison between um, how God created Adam and how Adam had Seth as his son. And, and the, Adam is made in the likeness of God, and Seth is apparently in the, notice how both words are used there in verse 3, in the likeness and the image of Adam. Or, um, so there's a connection in this text between the image of God and the concept of sonship. Now in the Bible, um, what does the concept of sonship entail? Um, you remember in the Gospels, another time when Jesus was in the temple, and he was in an argument with all the Jews there, and he was saying to them, they kept saying to him things like, we're the children of Abraham, and God is our father. And Jesus was saying things to them, things like, you're not the children of Abraham, because Abraham never tried to kill me. If you were his children, you would do what he did. No, no, you are the children of your father, the devil because he was a liar from the beginning, and you people are lying to me. So Jesus is explaining the concept, the concept of sonship in, in the Bible is not that my boy looks like me. We have the same nose, the same ears, same hair color, that sort of thing. Um, it means that we do the same things. In that culture, the boys, the, the, the father did not leave and go to work somewhere else. He worked at home, and his boys would be right there next to him. They'd be watching his example all day, every day. And they would not only just pick up his habits, his mannerisms, his method of speech, they would learn a trade from him. And then when they would get old enough to establish their own family, they would do what their father did. Um, so sonship in the Bible is not that we look like God. That's not what the image of God here means. It means that we reflect his character and conduct. So one more passage we'll look at. Uh, in Genesis 9, the image of God pops up again. And that's the last time in the book of Genesis it shows up. And we'll read verses 1 through 7 there of Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, and on every bird of the sky, and everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, and into your hand they are given. 
Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with the life that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made him. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So what, what does this teach us about the image of God? What does it imply? It implies something for us to do, and it implies something that we are. Russ, did you want to say something? Okay. Right. So there's the dignity of every individual. Murder is always wrong because we're created in the image of God. And we could say beyond murder, there's a, the image of God implies a moral responsibility to other people. We can't just do whatever we want to other people. We have to treat them with dignity and respect because they are the image of God. Also, it's interesting to observe that this is after the fall. The fall was chapter 3, and here we have chapter 9, and it's saying people are still the image of God. And we still have to treat people with respect because we're still the image of God. So one of the main implications of this passage in Genesis 9 is that the image of God is still in us. The fall did not destroy it. God still expects us somehow to reflect the nature and character of God. Okay, so, so these are our parameters. Somehow, um, somehow as, we, as we think about what the image of God means, we're going to try and get to a definition here in a minute. We haven't got there. But we need to kind of use these passages to kind of contain our thinking. It must be something that makes people distinct from all creation. It must be something that is not destroyed by the fall. And it must be something that makes us, in some sense, God's sons like him. Um, so with those kind of concepts in mind, let's move down your sheet to the common views. And we're going to look at four common views. Uh, we've only barely touched on two of them here. Uh, the first view is what I'll call the substantive view. Um, that is that the image of God consists in some attribute of human nature. Uh, we've already talked about that a little bit, but I'll give you a few quotes here. Um, two of the prominent people in, in church history who held this view were Augustine and Calvin. Augustine is the first one there. Um, Augustine understood the structure of the mind he took that from Aristotle. Aristotle said it was memory, understanding, and will. And Augustine saw that. He saw that as a picture of the Trinity, that it's a kind of a Trinity in miniature within our minds. Our minds have this threefold composite structure of memory, understanding, and will, according to Aristotle. And so that means that our minds are like a Trinity. So that's how we reflect God's nature. Our brains are triune. So the image of God here is found in the intellectual capacity of man. Our minds are structured to reflect the triune nature of God and accordingly are capable of knowing him truly, but not completely. So that's Augustine's view. Um, so it, it's the, like, like we have over here, it's the intellectual capacity of man. God is, if he's, in, he's a lot of things, but he's extremely smart <laughs> um, to do the things he did in creating the world, especially. You can see that. Um, and God has made us rational creatures. We are more intelligent than the beast that we rule over. And it's our intellectual capacity that gives us the ability to do that and also to relate to him. So that's how we, that's one, that's how we reflect God's nature, according to Augustine. Calvin is your next person there. Calvin believed that the image of God was found in the perfection of the whole nature of man. 
Um, and he goes to the New Testament. The New Testament teaches that the image of God is restored to us in Christ's righteousness. Um, let's look up that passage, Colossians 3.10. So you can see that. We'll read verses 9 and 10. Colossians 3, 9, 10. Don't lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there, the New Testament there is teaching that the image of God in us, while it's still there, somehow needs to be renewed. And it's renewed when we put, on, when we put off our sin and put on the knowledge of God. And so there's this idea that Calvin took this passages like this in the New Testament to mean that that's what the image of God is. The image of God must be that, must be holiness and sanctification. Because it was, it was, something was damaged in the fall, and when Christ comes to restore us, he, restore, he sanctifies us. The New, the New Testament calls that restoring the image of God. So that must be what the image of God is. It must be the fact that, so therefore, on your notes there, therefore the image of God in Genesis must have consisted in Adam's original righteousness. We are like God because he created us to be holy. In this view, the image of God was essentially destroyed in the fall. So Calvin, Calvin in his commentary on Genesis says, yeah, we're still in the image, but not really. I mean, we, he, he has to respect that the image of God is still there because the Bible says that, but he says, because we're totally depraved, our moral capacity has fallen so far, um, it would be like a coin has been rubbed too much. The picture gets flattened, and you can't hardly see it anymore. In his view, the image of God was so degraded that it might as well not even be there anymore. Now, that was Calvin's view. So those, those are two um, prominent people who believed in the substantive view. And that's what, we, that's what most of you seem to be at, is something like that, where it's our nature. There is another view. Um, there are a couple other views. The second one there is called, we're going to call the relational view. Uh, that the image of God consists in our relationships. Um, and one of the main theologians for that is Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. Uh, Karl Barth taught that the image of God consists in our vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationships with one another. The image is not something that we are, it's not something that we do, but it's in our capacity to relate. Does that sound kind of strange to y'all? Is that something that's really new? Sounds kind of weird to me. Um, but is he just making that up? Is there, is there something in Genesis that might have pointed him there in that direction? Yeah. And then he said, what's the next thing he says? Male and female, he created them. There's that, that point in the text is that God, when God created man in his image, he made both men and women are in the image of God. And the words that are used there are not men and women, but male and female which has a, a little more of a sexual connotation to it. It's that there's a compatibility there, a relational compatibility between male and female, as God made them in the image of God. That's, that's there in Genesis. And so Carbot is picking up on something like that and saying, well, that must be what the image of God is. It must be um, marriage relationships. It must be relationships in the church. It must be helping the poor. That kind of thing is the image of God. Um, this view, or... We'll put, it on, we'll put these over here, we'll see. 
So it's um. So this um this view is really common in liberal circles. Um, this is where this Karl Barth was one of the main liberal theologians of this past century. Um, other guys like Emil Brunner and other folks like that. This is very much um, in tune with liberal theology because the heart of liberal theology is two things. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And you can see that in this, this concept of the image of God. We relate to God. He's our father. We relate to others. Everyone is our brother. So that's kind of the, the hinge pin of liberal theology. And so they just take that and they put it right on the image of God. Uh, and so they make, they make the image of God almost the center of their theology, or they connect it to the center of their theology like that. Um, so that's view number two. View number three, we're going to call the functional view. And um, this view comes is not particularly common throughout church history. You have to go all the way back to a preacher named Chrysostom. Um, he believed that the image of God is something we do, Namely, ruling over God's creation. Um, and, of course, there's something about that in Genesis, as we mentioned a few moments ago. Right after God created us in his image, he said, here are the animals. Rule over them. Um, um, now, that view is, is, was kind of dormant throughout most of church history. Most of church history were over here. Most, most people throughout church history believe the substantive view. That's where most of y'all are at. That's where most people throughout church history have believed. Um, but this view is becoming increasingly common today, and a guy, Chuck Colson especially, is one of the more prominent guys who's popularized this view. Um, he uses it to, um, he's popularized this view of the image of God and uses it to advance what he calls the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. Um, does anybody, has anybody heard that? Do you, do you know what that is? Somebody tell me what that means. So they take, they take the idea in Genesis of ruling over creation um, and they bring that into the New Testament. They say, well, what, what we're supposed to do as the image of God is we're supposed to renew the culture. We're supposed to engage the culture. We're supposed to be active politically. We're supposed to make movies. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be out there influencing the world and we're supposed to be remaking society after the image of Christ. Um, that's what the cultural mandate is. That's what guys like Chuck Colson are teaching about that. Uh, and they, where they get it, they're not getting it from, Jesus doesn't ever say, go out into all the world and renew the culture. You know, there, there's, not, there's not a direct command in the New Testament to do that. So they go all the way back to Genesis 1, and they ground it in the image of God. They say the image of God means you renew the culture. Um, that, so that, that, and that view is becoming more prominent. I know that now that we put it in those terms, you're probably more familiar with it. You probably recognize that you've heard it. Um, so those are three of the views. We're going to do one more, the indefinite view, um, which kind of puts all these together. Put this here. We're just going to call it the indefinite view because I don't know what else to call it. Um, this is the idea that the image of God consists generally in our likeness to God. Yeah, go ahead.
I don't know. I didn't read that deeply, so I can maybe look it up and try and find out for you, but I don't know. Um, okay, so number four um, is um, there's a guy named Wayne Gruden, who's the systematic theology of a lot of y'all are familiar with. In his theology, in his book on theology, he identifies that the, the flaw in all of these views is their specificity. That is, they're too narrow. You know, human nature is more than intellect. Human nature is more than our moral capacity. Human nature is more than our emotions. It's more than our relationships. It's more than our work. Um, in fact, it's all of these things, isn't it? Um, so what he's going to say is that the problem with these views is that they're all too narrow. They're all trying to pick one thing. It's the image of God. And, but the image of God is not one thing. It's the whole person. It's the entirety of who I am. So he believes the flaw in all these views is their specificity. and their, the understanding, His understanding of the image of God should be limited just to the meaning of the terms image and likeness. So he's going to say, Let, let's forget all this and just concentrate on what the word image and likeness mean. And it means representation. So the image of God just means that we represent God. It just means we're like him somehow. We're like God. Let's stop there. That's what Grudem is going to say. Um, so now before we, the next step we're going to do is we're going to, go ahead. Specificity. Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem. G-R-U-D-E-M. Um, specificity. That let's just say they're too narrow. Yes, they're too specific. They're too narrow. Just put, yeah. Um, so we still don't have an, a definition of the image of God, do we? We've looked at Genesis, and we've seen some of the parameters of it. We've looked at these views, and that's helped us to clarify our thinking a little bit, but we still don't have a definition. Um, but before we, we go to the next step and start moving toward a definition, let's evaluate these views. Um, What's good about this view in terms of biblical? I mean, is it in the Bible? Is there something like that in Genesis? Yeah. Okay, is there something like this in Genesis? Yes. Is there something like this in Genesis? I think so. So there's, all, there's a, an element of truth in all of these, isn't there? Um, but can the, should, we, should we think that the image of God is limited to our relationships? I don't think so. Should we think that it's limited to some attribute that we have? Should we think that it's limited to all of our attributes? I don't think so. Um, do we th should we think that it's limited to our task in the world? I don't think so. I think Grudem is right to say that, that these views are not adequate. Um, but Grudem's view is also not adequate because the Bible does have more to say about the image of God than just what's in Genesis. So now as we move toward a definition of the image of God, let's, let's bring in the Apostle Paul and the King David. Uh, turn over... We're going to take the second one there first. 1 Corinthians 11.7. We're going to go there first. Okay. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the more difficult and strange passages in the New Testament. Uh, but we're not going to get into all that. Um, but let's just read uh, verses, say, 5 through 7. Five, 5 through 8, I'm sorry. 
He's talking about order in the worship services. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is the one the same as if that woman whose head was shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Um, so let's, let's get beyond the head covering thing, because that's, that's outside the scope of what we're talking about today. But let's look at what this says about the image of God, because he's arguing for a cer- there's a certain order and structure in the church because we're made in the image of God. And he's going to give us a clue as to what the image of God means. Um, look at how he describes man. He describes men and women in slightly different ways. The man is, what is the man? Image and glory. But that's not what Genesis said. The, Genesis said we're the image and likeness. But when the Apostle Paul wants to say that we're the image of God, he changes it a little bit. He, changes, he says we're the image and glory. Why does he do that? Is he twisting the scripture? No. <laughs> Why is he doing that? Well, maybe. Um, what he's doing there is he's explaining to us what the word likeness means. He took the word likeness out and replaced it with something else. He's doing that not because he's changing the scripture, but because he's telling us what it originally meant. He's telling us what the word likeness in Genesis means. He says, man is the image and glory of God. He says, man is the image of God, and that means that man is the glory of God. So he's defining the image of God in terms of reflecting God's glory. And he says that woman is the glory of man. Is He's not... Obviously, he's not denying that women are made in the image of God. He's saying that they share the glory of God with each other, um, and they do that by relating to each other correctly. Um, but for now, uh, for now, it's, it's enough for us to note that there is, there's still a connection in relationships there, isn't there, between the image of God. He's still, the Apostle Paul is, is drawing an analogy over here. Um, but what he's doing is he's defying the image of God for us in terms of the glory of God. And this is not the only place that the Apostle Paul does that. He does it in several other. We'll just look at one more. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We're going to read verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus Christ is the image of God. Um, there's a theology there that we'll get into in a couple weeks. Um, but let's just focus on what that means. If Jesus is the image of God, in this text, in this verse, what does he do? He brings people to salvation, and the way he does that is by showing the glory of God. It is described as he's the, it's the light of the gospel. The, image, the glory of the gospel 
Jesus shows the glory of God. He's the very focus of God's glory in history and in the universe. Um, you might say that the person of Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is the person throughout the history of the world who the glory of God is most clearly revealed. There's a hand back there. It certainly is connected to Christ. Um, the image of God in us is, is fulfilled in our relationship with Christ. Um, yes. Um, but you can also go from that to a more specific application about relationships, which we're not going to do that today. Um, right now we're just, gonna, we're just trying to figure out what the, what the word image means. What does it mean that we're in the image of God? And there is, what we're, we're trying to show you is that the Apostle Paul thinks it has to do with God's glory. Um, and he's not just making this up. He's getting it from King David. So let's turn over to Psalm 8. Of course, he's getting it from the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit helped him see Psalm 8, I think. We're going to start in Psalm 8. We're going to start in verse 3. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? What is the, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. I would, I would translate that. Your translation might have God or something different. Um, you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then verse 9, how, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, so what passage is Psalm 8 building on? That la the language in Psalm 8 comes from somewhere. Where does it come from? The creation account. He's, the Psalm, David is here thinking about creation. He's thinking about the creation of the world and especially the creation of man. Now when God has created man, what did God do for him? In verse, five, in verse 5, what did God do? How did God honor man when he created them? He crowned him with glory and honor. This, this passage doesn't use the word image. I think it's substituting the concept of being made. He's talking about the creation of man, but he doesn't use the word image. He substitutes the concept of image for the concept of glory. Um, I think this is, this is the kind of the passage that Paul was thinking about when he says we're made in the image and glory of God. He's thinking about this especially verse 5, that you have crowned him with glory and majesty. So I think on the basis of these passages, I'm going to suggest to you a definition now of the image of God. Here's what I think it means. Um, on the basis of these passages, we should understand that the image of God, the image of God as God's gracious declaration that the human race would be the clearest mirror of God's glory in all creation. I'll say that again for those of you who are taking notes. I'll read it one more time. That the image of God is God's gracious declaration that the human race would be the clearest mirror of God's glory in all creation. So in other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that it's none of these things. Um, think about it this way. Um, yeah, I'll read it one more time. 
God's gracious declaration that the human race would be the clearest mirror of God's glory in all creation. Let's think about these views again. There's one problem with all of these views that we haven't discussed yet. We know from Genesis that the image of God is something that makes, not only makes us like God, but it makes us distinct from the rest of creation as the capstone of God's creation. I'm going to suggest to you that that includes the angels. The angels were not made in the image of God, were they? But the angels have intellect. They have a better intellect than we do. They have moral capacity. The good angels have better moral capacity than we do. Um, what about relationships? Do they relate to God? Do they relate to each other? Do they do it better than us? There are angels that have never sinned and have been in the presence of God for all eternity since they were created. They do that better than we do. What about dominion? Do you think they could have better dominion than us with their in incredible intellects and amazing power? Do you think they could do that better than us? I think they could. So I'm going to suggest to you that the image of God is none of these things, that there's nothing in us that makes us the image of God. What makes us the image of God is that God has said so. God in his grace has declared that we, little peons like us, would reflect his glory. God has decided in his grace, he has crowned us with glory and honor. Do we deserve it? No. Are we capable of it? I don't really know. It's not until we get the Holy Spirit that the image of God is renewed in us. And God makes us capable of reflecting his nature. Um, so it's God's gracious declaration. In other words, when we, when, let me put it to you this way. When God said, let's make man in our image and our likeness, what he's saying is, I'm going to make a race of people that throughout history will show the universe how awesome I am. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of us? Yet you've crowned us with glory and honor. You've made us the focus. All of the universe, including the angels, is looking to us to see what God is like. And that is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, it's when we come to Christ and we are connected to the man who is the image of God that the universe can see the glory of God in us. So it's, I don't think it's any of these things. I think it's God's say-so. It's his intention and his purpose for humanity. That humanity would be the, the place where his glory dwells. Um, so now we've got about five more minutes left. So let's think of some applications. I've been doing a lot of talking. What do you think? How does this, what does it mean to you? How do you apply it? What do you do with this? That's a good one. That's a good one. We have, uh, we have a purpose in this world. And our purpose is, like you're saying, to be a light. It is, we are created for one thing, and that's to bring glory to God in everything we say and do and think. Um, 
God's, Jesus said, I'm sorry, go ahead. So humility and dependence on God. That's a good application. What else? Any other applications? At least Calvin's view of it. Yeah, I could. Right, it could. I mean, yeah, it could. If if I've got the image of God because I'm holy, what about these schlubs I work with? They're hardly even the image of God. You know, it, it could lead to self righteousness, but it doesn't have to. But it could. But this, but a view like, but this, um, of course, that contradicts the scripture. Everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone has dignity. You know, the reason we don't abort our babies, even if they have Down syndrome is because God said they're made in his image. Everyone has dignity. The unbelievers at our work, they are still the image of God. You know, they, they're created that way by God. They're declared by God to be his image, and they deserve our honor because of that. Anything else? I think this view helps us understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, render unto God what is God's. We are God's. His image is on, us, is on us, and that means we belong to him. And so everything we say, do, and think should be directed to his glory. Let's pray and go to worship. Father in heaven, um, I'm convicted and humbled by your word. I, I haven't lived up to this standard this week. And I pray that you would um, forgive me of my faults and that you would restore your image in me. Let me be 
a reflection of your character for others to see. I pray that for each of us here today. In Christ's name, amen.